You are listening to Heavenly Chi Podcast, Episode 55. Today we are discussing practitioner and patient dynamics and some tricky scenarios in the clinic. Hey everybody, I'm Claire Pyers. And I'm Fiona Gitchum. And today we're talking about creating harmonious dynamics between practitioners and patients. Sometimes it's only when an awkward situation arises that practitioners are prompted to create processes in their clinic that allow for smooth interactions between practitioner and patient. Setting this up well in the beginning helps to get the best patient outcomes. The Heavenly Chi podcast is produced for your enjoyment and professional development. Show notes and continuing professional development resources are found at www.heavenlychipodcast.com. You can add Heavenly Chi Podcast to your favourite RSS feed, iTunes or Stitcher. You can also follow us on Facebook. All links are in the show notes. We hope you enjoy today's episode and if you really enjoy our show, please rate us on iTunes. Welcome to the show today, everybody. Thanks for joining us. And today we're talking about a really important topic in clinic and It's not one that's necessarily around the technicalities of, you know, what you're prescribing to your patients or what kind of treatments you're giving to them, but comes down to a more foundational level in terms of how you're interacting with your patients, how that dynamic is set up between you and your patients, um, and just different ways in which it can go wrong. And it can affect your experience as a practitioner. It can affect the patient's experience as well and it can really interfere with your ability to to help your patients to the point where sometimes it results in in a complete breakdown between the relationship between the practitioner and the patient and so we found um, in our years of clinical practice that the same themes come up again and again and we noticed from some of our discussions with you guys on on um public forum or on practitioner forums that um, that these are the s- sorts of issues that everyone around the world is dealing with. And so we thought it's a really great opportunity to have an episode where we go through and discuss our own experiences with this in, in practice and the sorts of things that we've done that have that have worked, some of the things that haven't worked so well. Um, you know, we're not we're not professing to have all of this totally nailed down. Um, but there's definitely things that we've found over the years that help just create a more harmonious dynamic between us as practitioners and our patients. Yeah, I think this is definitely a topic that we see questions about often on the forums. You know, this has happened, it's kind of awkward, or how do I deal with this, or that's going on. So let's, um, shall we just jump into the types of scenarios we're going to explore and the types of systems we're going to explore as well for dealing with them? Mm. So we've so got, first up, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say we've got a bit of a list, uh, and this is our list. And you know, other people might have other things that they experience in their clinic that really throws things out. But uh, this is our list of our top seven things that we find that uh, need to be addressed from time to time with various uh, in various scenarios in order to get good outcomes. So starting with number one, we've got when patients are late or if you have a particular patient who's frequently late and you need to be able to time manage that session and also figure out how you're going to respond to that with that patient. 
Yeah. I will also add practitioners who are late. Um, I very freely put my hand up as one of those practitioners who does not run on time. So I think we should just say people who are late, not just practitioners, not just patients, but also mm-hmm. practitioners and how how do you set that up in your clinic? Yeah, yeah, because if it's part of the nature of your treatments that you may not always be on time, you can factor that in and kind of embrace it as a strength in the way you practice as long as you've set it up properly and your mm. patients, they kind of know how they're going to go through their booking with you or what may happen to their schedule or time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So let's start with one of them. Let's start with practitioners who are late. Yeah, yeah. We'll own it first. Yeah, I'll totally own this. Um, And interestingly, there was a discussion not long ago on one of the Facebook forums where, you know, people were talking about, you know, running late and so forth. And, uh, yeah, it was was very interesting because I put my hand up and I said, hey, I – it's really unusual for me to run on time. And part of that is that I think the biggest reason is that I create a space within my consults where I do a lot of talking, I go quite deep with my patients, I treat a lot of complex patients, you know, with very complex health histories. I get a lot of referrals from other practitioners with their difficult-to-treat patients. And so there's a lot that's required for me to go through with my patients, particularly in the early sessions. And also I do spend time um, getting into, not necessarily counselling as such, but just getting into some of those emotional and spiritual layers with my patients to really really get down into those underlying causes of disease processes. And those things take time and you can't, uh, well, I'm not going to make a generalisation, but I find that I can't do what I do best within a set time frame. It may, I may be able to get it done in 25 minutes or I may be able to get it done in 40 minutes, but I'm not, um, I've made a decision that I'm not going to be looking at my watch or looking at my clock and saying, well, time's up, here's a tissue, wipe your tears and I'll see you next week. You know, we'll talk about the reason that you feel like your life is a disaster next week. Um, You know, like it takes as long as it takes and everyone is afforded the same, um, that same consideration. And so whilst the majority of the time I can treat people within the timeframe um, that's allocated, occasionally that um, there's a bit of a buffer that runs over and that, um, you know, that can land me being, five, 10, 15 minutes late on a, on a very ordinary day. Um, and so my, I'm very upfront about that with my patients um, and my reception staff also know to let patients know and to, um, and to explain to them as, and to reinforce that I'm not a practitioner that can reliably run on time and that it's definitely something that's very important For some patients, you know, for people who really need their practitioner to be on time, that's totally fine. I get that. I'm not the practitioner for them and there are other practitioners in our clinic who do run on time and they're more than welcome to see whomever they please. So that's how it works in my clinic. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a 
saying I've heard more than one acupuncturist express, and that is that, you know, chi acupuncture takes as long as it takes. And there are some treatments that can predictably run to time. And then there are some treatments that that don't and some treatments that go longer. And then, like you said, you know, sometimes you do a really good treatment and it's right towards the end of the session that a catharsis can begin. And do you really want to uh, close the door right then? Mm. So it can be really awkward. Um, and I've had experiences where I've worked in a clinic with a lot of practitioners, about 14 practitioners all doing different things. And we would get really booked out and pretty much have to run on time to a certain extent. You know, we really only had the kind of five, maybe eight minutes either side if you're really pushing it. And then you have to try and figure out how to catch that up. And And then I've had circumstances where... I've really been able to do the treatment for as long as I like. And I think that one of the really important things that facilitates that is having a second room. And then that allows you also options where you can, if you have the chance to leave the room, you can bring people into the second room and kind of get them started with getting set up before you quite get to them, which also can help them feel like, you know, they're getting in earlier. And then I've worked in situations where more recently I took my clinic online for a year or so during an inter international life transition. And then when you have people booked in online and they're not in your waiting room, it becomes a whole lot more awkward to not run on time. And so with that, it, it became really important for me to really think about how my consults run and how I'm going to respond to certain things and how much I'm going to try and put into a consult because it was going to be more important for me to either be able to get off at a certain time or at least be able to email the next person or contact them digitally and let them know that the session would be delayed. And that can have a, a, a different kind of compounding factor if that's the start of your day and you've got whole lot of appointments lined up yeah that that is a really good point because if you if you're making a an appointment time online for you know say for example a Skype consult that um, the biggest panic moment that a lot of people have is that fear of oh my god I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time and they're they're there and you know the appointment's at 11 and it's 1101 and they're like oh my god did I get it wrong has the person yeah they're not here I've abandoned and, you know, all kinds of triggers can go off. And, uh, yeah, that's, I can imagine that would be really, really tricky and to navigate and really important to navigate. It's been really confronting for me because it's not my ideal way to practice. You know, my ideal way to practice, I would have a spare room and be able to just kind of be flexible with that um, appointment start and finish time and really just make sure that what we needed to do today was done. But with this system, it's really made me look at certain things around uh, the boundaries of that and how do you communicate around that, you know. Um, and I looked at a bunch of advice that business coaches were giving because I thought, wow, I'm really not sure how I am going to deal with the situation um, if someone is is emotional and I need to finish the consult. And, you know, I found one piece of advice was that someone had set it up early on in their relationship with people, like right at the intake, that um, they're very committed to showing up for this person, but they're also very committed to showing up for everyone that's booked in with them. And so part of that commitment was that they're committed equally to the start and the finish time. 
of the consult and that they will be there. And I think that that sort of delivered that kind of system to the pe- their clients in a positive way yeah. that made them feel, you know, makes them feel like that's a strength. Yeah. On that note, I had a conversation with a patient a little earlier in the year and um, she was down from interstate. She would normally see another practitioner near her home, um, but she was down visiting some relatives and when she's in town where I am, then she'll come and see me. And, you know, it was on a day where I was running particularly late and, um, you know, my receptionist had checked with her and said, you know, look, like often they'll ring ahead of time and just say, look, at this stage, you know, Claire's running so far behind, um, you know, feel free to to come a little bit later um, and if, if you need to then we can reschedule that time. But, um, you know, she was happy to come and she was waiting and she was, you know, she made some comment about how her normal practitioner that she sees is very prompt with both start and finish times and that he was always on time, there's never even one or two minutes late. But then in the same breath she said, but you know what, I really like coming here too and I come here and what I get out of a consult with you is different than what I get out of a consult with him. And so she was going through a divorce and she found that the type of consult that she had with the practitioner who was running on time was not the type of consult that would allow her to feel safe and held to be able to discuss her emotions and feelings and how she was going and coping with the divorce because she felt like if she started that she might not be able to stop on time and she didn't want to feel like she was going to get cut off. And so it was a really interesting, um, it was a really interesting discussion because she saw the value in both setups and she'd experienced both and she really liked both at different times and for different reasons. And I know for some practitioners they can't think of anything worse than sitting down and talking through with patients, you know, on more of that counselling level. You know, some people don't enjoy it. Some people don't feel equipped, well-equipped to be able to do that, and that's totally fine. And I think that one of those, you know, that aspect can make it a lot easier to run on time is just, you know, less talking. Yeah, I think absolutely. There'll be there'll be practitioners who may listen to this and be like, no, that's not a problem for me because I just never did that in the first place, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, They're like, why are you spending so much time? The types of (laughs) yeah, the types of treatments they do may be more predictable in terms of how long they take, and maybe more technique oriented instead of human chaos oriented, (laughs) you know. But I think it's also interesting if you are someone that tends to really be flexible with how long the treatment goes for that you factor it into how you charge for the sessions because there can be a real money block you know around over giving you can set up a dynamic that can be awkward when your people actually expect more from you than what they've actually booked for yeah yeah I think um I think that's a good point as well we at the moment in our clinic have a um, you know like a regular follow-up consult charge and then we have a long follow-up consult charge so if you're spending more than half an hour in the consult with the patient then they're charged for a long consult Um, and that allows you know the patients know that that's there 
And I think that allows them some level of comfort that they don't have to feel guilty or feel bad that they're taking up so much of my time. I've had patients say that to me before. They say, you know, I feel so bad. I've taken up so much of your time. Whereas they will often kind of reframe reframe that for themselves and say, thank you for spending that extra time with me today because they know that we, we account for that and we allow for that in the way that we bill. And that's, I think that's even more positive way of putting it, you know, than the idea of charging more with a longer session. You know, the other thing is also if they know that you're booked out and that you're running late and that that's how you run your clinic because so that everyone gets what they need, that they'll, the exchange there is in the bill and that it's clear dynamic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so we've talked yeah. about uh, practitioners who are late. And now mm-hmm. when patients are late and people who are late all the time and not like, you know, one or two minutes late, you know, maybe had difficulty parking their car or something like that, but they're, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes late or even longer. Mm-hmm. What's your experience with that? Well, I think firstly when if, if people are late uh, and it's the first time, it's really important to say something about it then and even if it's uh, kind of tempting to brush it off and try and make them feel okay if you know if they're coming in oh I'm so sorry and you'd be like oh no it's just fine I mean you can you have an opportunity there where you can educate them just a little bit more about what's going to happen in future if they were late or what what are the implications of that in a way that doesn't make them feel bad or anything like that but it's you know it's your chance if you haven't done it before they're late the first time so there's been no prevention or maybe there was maybe it was mentioned maybe it's in your intake pack or something but you know often patients don't necessarily read and absorb all of that I think and so sometimes they find out on the first occasion so I think it's worth mentioning you know hey that's okay you're late today no problem Um, and let them know whether or not you're going to have to finish the treatment on time or if you're able to extend the treatment, and that would obviously depend on your circumstances and how you run your clinic. But also, you know, let them know for next time whether or not your clinic can handle them being 20 minutes late or something like that in general, and and you being able to give them an adequate treatment. Mm, Yeah. And oftentimes people who are running late and people who are habitual latecomers are you know they're late for everything and that often comes down to not for all of them but for a lot of them they have quite high levels of anxiety and so they put off leaving the house they put off you know even just getting in the shower and getting dressed because their anxiety levels kind of stop them from doing things in a in an organized timely calm cool collected way and so often even if they are late that you know they're telling you about what their life is like they're telling you what it's like to be them that they don't get to have that feeling of calmness in their day because they're late for you and then they're late for the next thing and they're late for the next thing Um, and I often for these people just a very quick chat and just pop them on the table and just give them a really calming treatment and just Mm. want them to feel um, like they at least have some element of peace in their day yeah, I mean, when you describe that particular constitution, you know, I'm thinking of a wood invading earth late 
<laughs> like there's this conflict between their sensitivity and yet their need to go and act and do things. So they probably overbook themselves as well, possibly. Yeah. yeah. I think that's one, one option is people just overbooking themselves either through a burden of obligations in their life that they've previously set up that they may not just outright say to you in the consult but that you can diagnose wow this person is late for everything because they're just trying to cram so much into their life and a lot of it is responsibility based you know that's really important for their health mm. and just a diagnostic level yeah and just not having truthful conversations and and a, a truthful awareness with themselves about how long things take yeah you know there's, there's yeah, I guess it could be that they're just really ungrounded, you know, mm. really weak earth and they're kind of just off with the fairies and get distracted and just kind of made them late. But they're like that with everything through the day. Then that's definitely uh, something we can address with treatments too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, we have um, in our clinic, even though I run late, a lot. I'm not late all the time, and the other practitioners in the clinic are certainly not as late as I am. Um, and we'll we'll ring people once it's ten minutes past the start time of their consult, just to check. You know, are you still coming? Is everything okay? Are you on your way? Um, it's just a, I guess, kind of a courtesy call. A lot of the time, it goes to voicemail if people are driving or for some reason not able to access their phone, but. Um, at least we're kind of reaching out and and seeing where people are at. And often they're, you know, they're like, oh, my God, I'm driving around, I'm trying to find a car park, and they're panicked. And, you know, we <laughs> we kind of say, you know, look, it's okay, it's all right. Um, just get here. I'm having you. memories of the car parking around Claire's clinic <laughs> at the moment. It's pretty bad. It's pretty <laughs> it's, bad. It's just really tricky to get a park that you can use for more than an hour. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the parking's pretty bad. And so we, you know, we acknowledge that. It's not like we live, but we have our clinic in a really quiet area where you can park out the front. You know, we call we call the car, there's like three or four car spots that are right out the front of the clinic and we call them the rock star car parks. And <laughs> <laughs> very, very occasionally a patient will get a rock star car park, but, you know, the rest of the time they're having to walk five or ten minutes. Um, after you can paint a gold, a gold star on those. It would help prevent other people who aren't visiting your clinic from parking in them as well, which I know happens. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, I, I um, who, I've had, you know, the funniest combinations. We've had an episode oh, a long time ago about cosmic perceptionists. I think it was in um, episode number 10 maybe, but way back early on. But our cosmic receptionist does some good jigging around of of, um, of patients and appointment times and sometimes we'll get patients who will come really early and um, at the same time that another patient is running really late. And so an example might be you've got an 11 o'clock appointment and an 11.30 appointment and the 11 a.m. person is running really late and the 11.30 a.m. person is running really early and we just swap them around. We just say, right, well, you're here first. Next person's late. Let's just make a start and that can help things to run smoothly as well. So we're very, mm. you know, 
we just kind of let things go with the flow, whereas I know that that does not work at all in other people's clinics and the way that they run them. And I do know that other people have a policy where if their patients are are late by any amount that they will be automatically rescheduled, um, particularly yeah, so in people just... who run, you know, they run right on time. Yeah. I was thinking as well, at what point would it happen for me that someone is so late that I need to tell them I can't treat them? And I've never had to do that, but I have had someone who is really chronically late and they would also really reschedule a lot. So you'd be late and then that would reschedule the late appointment. (laughs) And so what happened was we just set up a system where we'd ask people to pay up front to prevent that. And that really changed it. But also then uh, I didn't see that patient as much at all because I knew that they knew that their life schedule couldn't handle that. Yeah. So this is, so we're moving into number two now, which is the rescheduling patients. Mm. And Mm -hmm. um, I think I've, I mean, I've had some experience in, in the past where patients have rescheduled more than they've come. You know, it might take them four or five goes to get an appointment. Um, Right, and that really (laughs) stuffs up your treatment timing. I mean, I've had this explained to people, I need to see you this many times in the first month. It's like four to six times usually with me in the first month. Yeah. And, you know, and then it's kind of three and a half weeks before I get them in their second consult because of the reschedules. So. Yeah, that's that's got several implications on that one because it impacts on the outcomes. Absolutely. Well, they don't get any outcomes, but, you know, like some of these patients have rescheduled and rescheduled and you don't see them for two or three months. Um, and so, you know, in some cases you are back at the start. But um, I've had patients in the past who reschedule so much that um, we've actually said to them hey you know what we've noticed that um you know obviously you've got a lot going on in your life at the moment that's fine we get it um why don't you just assess on the day when you know that you can come in you um ring in the morning and find out what appointment times we have available on that day for you rather than taking up spots and this all of this backwards and forwards and they feel awful and then there's pressure for them to, you know, get in touch with us and, you know, because we're charging um, cancellation fees for short notice. And so there was a lot of like backwards and forwards and we just thought, look, it just makes it easier for everyone. They don't have to stress out so much. We're showing that we're understanding that they've got stuff going on and that it's impacting their ability to commit to an appointment. And it also means that we can provide more certainty for the patients who do want to come on a more regular basis without having to do wait lists and things like that, which does cause some anxiety for patients as well. So that's something that um, that we found was a really good uh, a really good way of dealing with the reschedulers because we keep track of when people reschedule. Yeah, I think that's a great system if you're having people pay afterwards. I've noticed that since I've shifted to online consulting for this interim period in my life and I have online booking and so people pay up front for everything and then they they get the information, they get the reschedule or the cancellation policy, which I ask people for 24 hours 
I'm just not having people reschedule. Mm, yeah. They're just turning up and it's fantastic. I have mm. to say that's a really great solution. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> Uh, and I think that once people are in the dynamic and the habit of paying up front, they feel really good about it too because they get to come for their consult and leave and there's no money stuff to be done. Yeah. Um, although then obviously I prescribe things, I send them an invoice for that part of it. Yeah. And speak prescribing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How do we deal with, you know, hot topic number three, patients who are self-prescribing or they're seeing other practitioners who are prescribing them things that may be conflicting with what we're doing. I've recently decided just this year, 2017, that I wanted to set that up differently. In the past, I've often dealt with it or responded to it if it happens. You know, in the beginning, I try to talk to people and say, you know, um, I'm giving you herbs and supplements and doing nutrition. Do you see anyone else that does that? You know, it's not the it's it's not necessarily going to be easy for us to tell what's causing what if you have any double ups there. And I I used to describe that a little more loosely, you know. Um, but during 2017, I had decided that I would create it as part of the welcome pack and the intake pack, more like a, if you're working with us, you know, we're going to be taking care of these aspects for you. Some people may set it up differently with us in the beginning where they're saying, I've got this doctor, but they might have a specialist or be taking pharmaceutical things or have a specialist that's also working that's actually great to have on the team when you with some people I've been on as part of a healthcare team. So you just define your zone and then uh, just let them know that, that you expect no self-prescribing or for them to take anything from anyone else without running it by you first. But I always include in that that I want my patients to feel welcome if there's something that they would consider taking to run it by me and bring it to me and say, hey, do you think I should take this or I should eat that? I think it's a really important dynamic to set up sooner rather than later. Yeah, I I agree. You know, patients can end up taking all kinds of things based on advice from the woman next door. It could be, you know, they've read something on the internet about a particular product. Sometimes they don't even realise that they're self-prescribing. You know, they're putting maca powder into their smoothie and they don't even realise that that's like a supplement. Um, Absolutely, and they can be excited to tell us, hey, I started taking this. Yeah. Isn't that good? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, so, and sometimes it will be good. Yeah, sometimes it is and sometimes it's disastrous. You know, I had a, I've got a patient and her copper, she has very, very, very high levels of unbound copper in her system, like 50% of the copper in her system is unbound. And so it's causing a lot of problems for her in terms of her nervous system and her brain function, but also her hormonal functioning. And so, you know, she's got these diabolical health problems and, you know, we had her on a good trajectory with, with treatment and everything kind of went off, off the rails a little bit. And so we did a full re-evaluation. She said, I've started taking this liquid, um, you know, and it's meant to be really great. And I said, okay, can you, um, she couldn't remember what it was called anyway. She took a photo of it, sent it through to me when when she got home. And um, and I looked it up and, oh, my goodness, I nearly had a heart attack. It had, like, multiple toxic heavy metals in it. 
including very high amounts of copper. And I just, you know, my heart kind of just sank for her (laughs) because she felt like she was doing the right thing and all of the literature on this particular website was very convincing about how it was very natural and very good for you and a really great way to kind of remineralize your body. But it was just such an awful product for her. And I can't imagine anyone who would do very well with high levels of aluminium and mercury and lead and silver in a, in any product. Um, mm. And I, I replied to her and I said, please throw this in the rubbish bin and don't give it to anyone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just laughing because there have been occasions where I've started to say maybe you can give it just, nah, don't give it to anyone. Don't give it to anyone. <laughs> um, you wouldn't even give it to your dog. But, um, you know, and I I don't take those things lightly, but, you know, it, it, it's really difficult for patients to be able to navigate. You know, there's so much information out there and anyone, anyone with any type of an idea can put up a website and say anything they like about any health product they like or any health issue they like. And it's very difficult, even as practitioners, to be able to discern you know, what's legit from what is just total BS. And mm-hmm. if it's difficult for us, then it's just such a minefield for patients who don't have the same level of training and and knowledge and context as we do. And so I think mm-hmm. it's really important to have an avenue. You know, I tell my patients they're welcome to text me or email me anytime. They have questions if there's and, and patients feel bad doing it. Some of them do, some of them don't. But um, that's the kind of thing I, I welcome them to text me about and say, hey, I'm in the health food store and I'm looking at this product. What do you think? And I'll give them a thumbs up or the thumbs down. I, yeah, know. I really encourage that too. I get them to send me photos as well of the ingredients side. Yeah. So most people who work with me know that they're sending me photos of ingredients and of their tongue quite frequently. Yes, yeah. Um, but, yeah, it can also be, hey, Dr Fiona, Dr Google says blah, 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 what do you think? So sometimes I think in dealing with that, sometimes honestly it's kind of just not really relevant to what they need and I'll just say, you know, we can go through this one time in a consult but I don't really think you need this right now, mm. you know, save your save your funds for focusing on other things that we're doing or maybe this would be great for you but we're not at that right stage in the sequence. And I find that, you know, you said earlier that they may not have the training for the context. Context is just so important and detailed in Chinese medicine. I mean, we understand herbs and items affect on the body, not just on their own, but in formula synergy. So when people are doctor Googling about things like supplements, you know, it's all just looking at everything in isolation. Yeah. Oh, this this supplement does this for me. Cool. I need some of that. Let's do it. But that sense of context is not even necessarily a strength in Chinese medicine that they may even know about yet. Yeah. Depending on how long they've been your patient or how long they've been uh, seeking Chinese medicine. Mm. So I think, you know, that's a really important aspect of the, the context as well. Yeah. And look, one of the things that I'll often do for my patients is to offer to do a a supplement cupboard review where they bring in everything from their magical place in their house where they keep all their stuff. And a lot of people have like these supplement graveyards where 
<laughs> half-used half herbal products and supplements kind of go to die in the back corner of some part of their kitchen you, cupboard. Or... Do you call it the supplement graveyard? I call it the stash. Oh, right. Say, well, Bring me your stash. And they turn up with those huge, like, huge tote bags, bags, picnic huge bags. tote bags. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've started now saying to people, go through and throw out what has expired first and then bring in what's left because a lot of the time you're looking at like it could be vitamin C from 2008 and you're thinking, wow, that's like nearly 10 years old. You can't use that stuff and you open it up and it's all crystallised and it's like this funky weird colour and, yeah, no, you have to throw that out. I mean minerals and things like that, like zinc, you could bury it in the ground and dig it up in a hundred years time and zinc's going to be zinc. But um, yeah, it's, it's difficult to explain that kind of stuff to patients. I'm just saying, look, just if it's not in date, throw it out and anything that you've still got that's in date, bring it in. And then you can make use of some of that stuff. You know, it's, um, yeah. you know, we live and in such a wasteful society. People have made, um, you know, they've paid good money and they've, They've purchased these things, and you know we already throw out so much stuff in our in our current lifestyles. I just think we should make use of what we have at home. Yeah, it's a way in which I find makes it really positive and supporting for patients to introduce this concept that you don't want them self-prescribing or taking stuff from other practitioners without running it by you first. Um, is is to say, look, you know, if you've got this stash or this graveyard, I'm sure you've invested in it. Bring it in. Let's see what we can use that you've already got. We don't have to sell you new stuff if you've already got the right stuff. Mm, yeah, exactly. I've had people bring in 12 different Chinese herbal formulas from all the different acupuncturists they've seen. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. We can use this one post-ovulation, but that one you can't have, but we might be able to use that in about three months. So just put that aside. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, you know, sometimes people have got all this stuff. They're like, I don't even know what any of this does, you know, and right. so even just having instructions around what they can do with it. You know, you can you can have a really great little um, first aid kit that people have in their home for, you know, what happens if you've got a headache or what happens if you're coming down with a cold. And, um, you know, a lot of what people have in their homes, you know, can fit into their, you know, their natural remedy first aid kit. Yeah, I've had a lot of fun creating fun labels for the patients to recognise which product they take when they're feeling a certain way. Yeah. And I'd often use their code words or their language. And I remember working with some really stressed um, people who work in television and who referred each other to come see to me. So there was this group of, you know, producers and TV executives that were stressed out that would come and say, oh, I want some of the TV Valium. You've got this stuff, the TV Valium, <laughs> because I'd labelled somebody's with TV Valium because that was the joke. And I was like, no, I've got something really natural and healthy for you. Let me help. <laughs> so, yeah, it's on the street out there, the old TV Valium, if you can get some. <laughs> <laughs> you got It was all different. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, it was different things for different people. So it could have been Guipitang or it could have been Tianwen Bujintan or it could have been L-theanine <laughs> for somebody else. So, yeah, it was just a different Shayasan even, you know. Yeah. But yes, the magic medicine that varies but could have the same label for different people. Mm. 
Mm. There's also, I think, the implication of when people are seeing others and it can really interfere with the sequence of treatment, especially if you're doing something like Claire and I've done a lot of autoimmune work. So one of the major causes of autoimmune work could be heavy metals or latent pathogens. And so you might be doing a sequence where you're working with formulas like Shao Chai Hutung and you are clearing out pathogens. Maybe this person uh, had glandular fever eight years ago and is still unwell and with fatigue and you don't want, and then they go and see their naturopath because they're feeling extra tired and uh, they get given some supertonic that sends the pathogen back deeper in through the layers. And I've seen that kind of scenario happen before where I've had to say, oh, wait, oh my gosh, look, I need to really educate people, not just on making sure they don't think that I'm just being controlling and saying, you have to run it by me. They're like, oh, but this is a really good naturopath, you know, and I've, I've been seeing this naturopath for a long time and it was just, it was just some, um, maybe it was ginseng or something that made me, cause I was tired, but, um, it can really interfere with what you're doing in terms of sequence. So I always have found that it's really important when I'm doing a sequence with people to educate them early on in the sequence about what it's going to require and why they'll need to avoid certain things during certain stages. And it may mean that some of the symptoms need to be dealt with later. For example, in that um, example, that was fatigue yeah. that we could really deal with later. Mm. Yeah, and I find it's not just with things that you're prescribing, but um, there's other practitioners that um, that people might be seeing that are doing needling, um, and that can really that can be a lot harder to to navigate because you you don't necessarily have access to a prescription, and so you don't necessarily know what exact points they're doing, and in fact, you know, if someone's doing you know, and I'm using air quotes here, dry needling, then they don't necessarily know what points they're doing either. And so you end up with this second treatment trajectory that may or may not be interfering with what you're trying to do with your patient. Um, and I just try and get my patients to, you know, if they are seeing other, you know, if they're seeing a chiropractor or an osteopath or a physiotherapist or even, you know, sometimes people are going having things done like chakra puncture, I just I try and discourage patients from doing that because they can end up um, they can end up almost undoing the effects of their treatment um, and particularly if you're doing things like you know as as uh, your example with autoimmune diseases if you're trying to vent latent pathogens um, or if you're trying to do some fertility work and you've got you know someone going and getting dry needling for their shin splints and they're getting, you know, really strong stimulation along their whole spleen channel, including, you know, spleen eight and spleen six, and they're trying to get pregnant. It's like, wow, okay, this is not going to work out very well. Um, yeah, that's a really good example because that's something that's I think a lot of patients these days still think they need a one practitioner for each of their problems. Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to get pregnant, but that's nothing to do with my shin splints. Yeah. They're just shin splints. I've had them since I was 11. I've always run. Yeah. You know, whatever. <laughs> there's their story. So, yeah, I think, you know, there's a, these are really good opportunities and there's so much of this to address that I think if I was to address all of this with someone in their first consult, there's no time left. No. 
So <laughs> we're going to get to that, but we've got a few more awkward scenarios to go through first. Yeah, so we've got, um, and this is kind of following on from the self-prescribing, but, you know, when you've got um, when you've got patients who are Googling stuff, you know, they're going home, they're looking stuff up, they're diagnosing themselves with all these problems at 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, they're like, oh, my God, I've got a deep vein thrombosis. And, you know, it can really. Um, and a rare leukaemia. Yeah, exactly. I mean, sometimes people do, but um, a lot of the mm. time they don't. And, but it's difficult to be able to make those assessments um, based on a list of symptoms from a website versus um, the more in-depth knowledge that we, you know, we're not necessarily experts as Chinese medicine practitioners, but our radars are a bit more finely tuned to be able to look out for those red flags and what those red flags look like. Yeah, and I think sometimes you have people that Google stuff just casually and it's not going to be a big deal and then sometimes people will just, it will be a really strong part of how they respond to their anxiety or their stress. You know, the Shen reaches out to Google and even though you ask them not to, it's almost like, oh, I can't stop. I think it's a hazard for some. And so then it, it does become also uh, an insight in a diagnostic for, you know, their Shen Qi. I don't mean kidney Qi, I mean the heart spirit Qi. Yeah. I probably work out, there's a couple of ways I, I look at addressing that. The first, The first is that, um, in the very first appointment that I have with someone, in the in the kind of closing up and the wrapping up, I say, look, here is my business card, my email address and my mobile number, my cell phone number are on there and you're welcome to contact me anytime you like with any questions, any question at all, you're welcome to get in touch. You're not necessarily going to get an immediate answer, but I will make sure I reply to you. Um, you know, I, I want to make sure that your all your concerns are heard and addressed um, and that that's kind of the first port of call in terms of setting up that expectation of hey you can ask me you don't have to google stuff and so I do get a lot of people who will send an email and they'll say oh you know just want to double check that my herbs are safe for pregnancy or I just want to double check that you know it says on the label this but you've said this you know, the manufacturer's label says this, but the label that you put on this is that, you know, which one is okay, is this safe? You know, and I get a lot of people who are into double-checking and triple-checking their facts, and that's okay. Mm. I'm happy for them to do that. And then that gives me more information for the next time where I can I can address these things. And sometimes, sometimes you can actually just then have the conversation and say, hey, I've noticed that you've got a lot of questions and that it seems to be coming from, you know, you not being confident that, you know, something is safe or you're worried about whether or not this is even appropriate for you. Let's talk about this now. Let's, you know, let's go through it. I want you to feel confident. And sometimes just spending an extra two or three minutes in the consult can leave them feeling a lot more easeful and less anxious and less likely to have to go to Google. So this yeah, I mean, this brings up an interesting dynamic. I'm I'm going to kind of play devil's advocate a little bit here. So you're talking about inviting people to contact you anytime yep. with any questions, any information, and that can end up being 
taken in a way that leads to boundary crossing depending on the energy of the practitioner and how it is they say that to people and how they present it now I know that's not really a major issue for you it doesn't lead to that outcome for you but I think for some practitioners that saying that kind of thing would just lead to people sending them eight messages a day like the same person every day so I just wanted to go into that a little bit and say that you you obviously you're suggesting to deal with that as soon as someone does start to contact you a lot yeah. to say, hey, you've got a lot of questions. How can I make you more confident in what we're doing so that you can just trust me during the week? Yeah. You don't need to communicate with me all week and then you can turn up next week and know that we've got it covered or next appointment, whenever it is. Yeah. I, I occasionally get people who do text me, you know, eight times or ten times in a day, but it's not eight times a day for six months. It's like eight times and then it'll be six times and it'll be four times and it'll be twice and it'll Mm. be like twice in a week like and I just I find that to be diagnostic and it's interesting because it doesn't happen very often with me I know that other practitioners like I've seen it even in my own clinic um, where some practitioners just really, you know, they just get these incessant emails from their patients that are really long and detailed. And I think one of the other things that I say in in that setup where I do invite people to ask me, I say, you're welcome to ask me any question. You may only get a one-word answer or a one-line answer, but that's usually all that's needed. And we can talk about things in more detail next appointment. But, you know, if you need a really quick answer... Or if you've got a question, just ask it. Um, and so yeah. maybe, maybe that's the, the part that's... That's the important part. That's the important part. That's the, that's the million dollar the part. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I get women texting me through their basal body temperature charts. I say to women, you can text me your chart every day. You know, text me a screenshot of your chart. If you don't know when you've ovulated, just send it to me every day and you'll get a one-word reply. <laughs> But, you know, you can totally do that. Um, And so a lot of people do take me up on that and it takes me five seconds. I'm happy to do it. Yeah. Rather than than Googling and trying to then, you know, like, oh, you know, people talking about ovulation dips and I'm like, oh, my God, just like don't don't look up that stuff. People, it's like (laughs) a million people on the internet who don't understand how charting works and I don't want you listening to any of them. (laughs) Right, right. So I have another system as well that may work for people when it comes to how many questions or uh, what kind of information they're sending you in between consults and how you want to manage that in terms of time and and if it works for you. I find that um, emailing people, patients, is fantastic because there's certain types of information and a lot of it is the information I'm dealing with is better to transmit in writing because they're going to need to review it again. Like I send people updated care plans pretty frequently. Nearly every time we catch up, they get an updated care plan. And I just want them to print it out, put it in their fridge, and I want them to be able to email me and check that they're able to prepare their herbs properly and that they've got the dosage right. And, you know, all of that is included in what I do. But then there's other stuff that they may want to email me that is completely new topics or new questions Um, and so for that I've set up a system where they can actually buy 
email support from me. They don't need to book in for a consult. And the minimum, you know, the minimum consult is half an hour, but with email support, they can just buy a few minutes. And the fee is prorated based on the amount of minutes I spend. And they can actually ask me lengthy or, or brief consult questions over email without having to have an appointment. And I find that in some of the types of illness that I help people with, I do a lot of work with cancer. Since I integrated nutritional genomics with Chinese medicine, and I find that there's a lot of information that may need to be transmitted and responded to that's writing. And sometimes there'll also be a healthcare team. So I decided to get comfortable with just identifying what types of written communications I'm going to charge for and my patients understand that system. Mm. Um, and that seems to be going really well. And I think it also works kind of naturally as a deterrent for people to send really lengthy, constant emails in between consults when they really just need to book another consult. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the easiest way to respond to that, if it's a really lengthy email, you just say, well, how I would respond to it is if there's anything that's clinically urgent that affects what they need to do between when they're seeing me, like between now and when they're seeing me next, then I'll address that in a one or a two sentence and the rest of it I just kind of store it. Yeah. In, in in my mental vault that I need to, when I see them next, I'm like, oh, that's right, you sent me an email with lots of questions. And a lot of the time they say, yeah, I didn't expect you to respond to it. I just wanted to make sure that you had it in time for our appointment. Or I just wanted to send it to you when it was fresh in my mind or whatever. Um, but, yeah, it's. Mm. I think there's a lot of subtle nuances that go into setting up that aspect of the patient dynamic that um, I think there's stuff that I do that I don't realise I do because I don't know how to break it down particularly well because, I, you know, I've had other practitioners um, in my clinic who've had horrible problems with this and I haven't been able to support them to be able to get to the same place where I'm at. Well, I think you bring up a really golden key and that is that one just because they're sending us questions and stuff, it doesn't mean they're really expecting a lot of detail or that you're going to put heaps and heaps of time into your response or that you're able to. Um, and the second one is that often a brief response and just allocating that problem to when you're going to deal with it in the next consult or some other appropriate time, that that's also enough. And so the patient, if the practitioner never gets into the dynamic where they're over, you know, they're spending an hour and a half responding all the time, oh, wow. right. then, then they're not going to have to face that problem in the dynamic either. Yeah. Well, let's go on to number five. So, Neither of us know how to say it. <laughs> yeah. This is a tricky one. Number five on our list is argumentative discussions with patients and I you know there are some people who by default kind of play devil's advocate or they like to they like to sit in that position of being in the opposite frame of mind you know mm. you say white I say black you know and that's their default approach to life and and those patients can be they often don't realize they're doing it so I don't 
you know, necessarily get annoyed with them for that reason. But it can be quite draining when you've got someone who's constantly questioning what you're telling them and questioning your instruction because it can really draw out the the consult. It can um, it can really trigger a lot of practitioners into patterns of behaviour that don't allow them to, you know, be as free giving with their information or with their energy in a treatment. Um, and it's, it's really interesting because I think there's so many layers that go on when there's um, that kind of argumentativeness and questioning that can go on in the consult, which is, you know, on some levels, you know, there's, there's going to be people out there going, but that's crazy. Why would they come and pay you? For your time and your advice, and for your advice, and then just you know, argue with you rather than listening to you. But you know, there's people out there who do it um, for all kinds of reasons. This is one that I find really tricky to deal with because I get triggered really easily by this. Yeah. So this is also really diagnostic. Like the, I'm thinking of the episode we did with. Guy Bennett's when we went first went through the wood constitution and how usually with someone who's a wood constitution will show you because they're going to somehow push against you or challenge you or maybe shout at you a little bit and if your energy matches them in response you do it with your voice and then you match them with that uh, holding your ground then they'll respect you and it will soften things and then the wood chi will flow and then you'll have this dynamic where they're receptive to you but if they don't get that in the beginning they still may stick with you for a while but still try and play that out to get that response from you and they're testing your strength in a way because that's what they're going to trust but I think you know there are certainly other dynamics and types where it's not because it's their constitution, um, but it's still diagnostic for us. For example, the person is fearful, you know, in terms of this time that we're in, the information that everybody's overloaded with is conflicting, there's so much deception and disinformation. And I think that, you know, there's also a lot of therapies for people who to choose. So if they're being like that, it's it's possibly because they're also testing the therapy and they're they're testing out the strength of the therapy and the logic of the therapy um, and if they can trust the therapy. Mm. I think also in patients who've been, you know, they've seen many practitioners before coming to see you uh, and potentially they've had bad experiences in the past as well. They it, they could be a sensitive person who is vulnerable to reacting to various treatments and so they're wanting to test out your resolve and test out your logic and test out, well, are you taking into account the fact that I could, you know, my body could flip out in response to what you're doing here? Um, and so there's, you know, there's lots of valid reasons why it's going to happen but it also it can really make it a bumpy ride initially for the practitioner and the patient in terms of working out how they're going to gel and I think there's also a potentially interesting dynamic when it's because um, people have systems in place for coping with either symptoms or like mental health processes and they're really attached to those systems that they have in place. They help make them feel safe. But if as a practitioner you can identify that maybe they're not really working 
and you try to replace them with another one, that can be a really difficult dynamic that I've experienced where you can get a lot of pushback, you know, and it's whether or not you're actually helping the person by saying, well, I think it's going to be more medicinal for you to let go of your attachment to this other method and try this new method versus maybe you don't stand your ground and you say, okay, we'll do it the way that works for you. So that can be a really tricky dynamic, especially if you're seeing it differently to the patient, if you're seeing things that aren't working, that the patient is still feels are working or is it is uh, only their comfort zone. Mm. So that's also important because I think there's ways that we can recognise that and then say, well, the question to ask yourself as the practitioner is, well, if this person, person can't go beyond this comfort zone, even if, uh, you know, that method's not helping them that they're attached to, then what can I do to actually extend their comfort zone? How do we do that with Chinese medicine? Yeah. Yeah, all of this stuff I think is, um, you know, it can be diagnostic. I think that, you know, if we can get out of our own way in terms of being, you know, like we're people as, you know, as practitioners, we're humans and we do react to things and sometimes it's difficult not to take things personally but if we can if we can hear with different ears um, and listen with our hearts a bit more we can we can see that these are just different ways in which our patients are showing their suffering and ways in which they're revealing you know different aspects and different layers of their diagnosis um, and thankfully, we have such a great framework <laughs> in uh, in Chinese medicine that we can kind of categorize all this stuff and we can make sense of it on those, um, you know, emotional and spiritual layers to be mm. able to understand, you know, what's going on, where is the qi flowing, where is the qi not flowing. You know, it might only be certain things that that a patient is going to, you know, argue with you about, and that's that's telling you where their level of, you know, where they feel safe and where they don't feel safe mm. and also, you know, where where the juice is, you know. <laughs> Where's the juicy bits? <laughs> it's like, right, right because well, there will, we go. <laughs> yeah, because that will probably be the destination that you need to eventually get back to. Yeah. Even if you need to uh, put it to the side for a while or perhaps – try and help it along in a non-direct manner for example maybe you're just treating the shen mm. in your treatments and you're going to wait until the relationship is ready for them to be different with you mm. yeah. yeah yeah and I think you have to listen to you know not how they're saying it necessarily but what they're saying and what they're not saying you know I see this happen a lot in um my work with fertility patients where there will be one, it's often the male partner who comes along reluctantly um, and will be very strong and direct and sometimes aggressive in their questioning around, you know, why do we have to do this? This sounds like, you know, a load of BS, you know, blah, 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 <laughs> you know, and, you know, and it, and, it can be really legitimate concerns, you know. You're, you're saying things that's the opposite of what they've been hearing and what they're told by mainstream medicine and what they're told by the media. 
um, and what's known as common knowledge. And uh, yeah, and you've you've got to kind of go through that rapport building process. But then often, I mean, and that's an extra layer within a fertility consult is that that's the type of dynamic that quite possibly exists at home between the male and the female partner and if there, you know, is that dynamic part of what's affecting their, um, you know, their relationship and, and all of that kind of stuff. And that's you know, beyond the scope of what we can talk about today. But, you know, there are things that we can, we can take into account in the way that we're going to be treating our patients and not, not in a judgmental way. I think um, mm. people can be, I've noticed that, you know, I mean, without any disrespect, but, you know, forums like acupuncturists on Facebook is known to be such a an inflammatory page and, you know, things can really get out of hand quite quickly. And I think that people, you know, sometimes I think just do it just to stir things up and have a good time. But um, you know, we have to be mindful that we're not wanting to necessarily judge people unnecessarily, you know, use, using our judgment in a discerning kind of way, but as, as a way of exploring and learning more about our patient rather than kind of blocking off and, um, and maybe not being able to see them. Yeah, properly. I think one of, one of the most helpful I would say resource <laughs> that I resort to for dealing with this kind of dynamic is the five element diagnosis because the wood person will respect you if you stand up to them the first time whereas uh, you know a water person who's arguing with you is really just needing you to hear their pain yeah so diagnosing that and, and if you stand up to them and push on them it might even feel aggressive to them yeah so yeah I've found that the most helpful because I I really uh, think that if we wanted to get into giving tips about you know ways you can respond to when people say this or that it just gets so you know complex so if you just put really come back in and, and I think this is a probably a resource I use for any difficult situation with any other difficult human or whether whoever's being difficult or whatever is difficult is just to really come back on an energetic level yeah and just try and figure out what do they need right now mm. yeah what is it that they're asking for with this drama yeah yeah what's missing you know, in this equation? drama is like a big pointing finger <laughs> and i don't mean in an accusing way <laughs> i mean it's pointing towards the signpost. something they need yeah yeah yeah. All right. So we have another difficult, difficult one here. Which is almost the opposite, I think. Yeah. It's when patients are dishonest. And that's often because they're wanting to please or they're wanting to avoid conflict or, you know, there's some level of not wanting to acknowledge where the problem is or what the problem is. Yeah. And I think if they're dishonest about things like what they're taking, you know, or like what they're eating, <laughs> that's one thing. Yeah. Um, but Oh, sorry. No, I was going to say it's very obvious when someone is not taking their herbs properly or their supplements properly. You know, you've given them two weeks of herbs and then, you know, six weeks later they're like, oh, I don't need any more herbs yet, I'm still going. Um 
you know, that's, it's pretty, it's pretty obvious. Um, but you know, how do you deal with that? I just gently tell them the first time I say, well, you, those herbs were only meant to last for two weeks and that was six weeks ago. And I say to them, are you finding it hard to take them? Are you not remembering? Is there, you know, is there a problem? Um, rather than saying you're a bad patient, you know, you're not doing <laughs> what you're told, you're out of here. <laughs> I know you're lying to me. I know those herbs should have finished at 9 a.m. on Tuesday morning and here we are five days later, you're telling me you've got half a bottle. <laughs> no, you can't do that. <laughs> no. Life happens and people forget one or two places. Yeah. I know, but I had to make the joke, you know, sometimes because the practitioner might be stressed and that may be they're in a dialogue. Yeah. You know, they may feel upset. They'd be like, God, why aren't you, why are you not taking the right dose? You know, so it's also an opportunity to really explain to people um, that dose is actually in a window and you can take not enough yeah. and waste your money on the herbs. Um, and I've had a, a mistake I made, I think, where, I once wanted to encourage someone to really take the proper dose and not try and thin them out to one teaspoon every second day. And and I said, look, I really I really care about your budget because their budget was tight too. Mm. Really care about your budget and I really care that you get the results from your budget. And I just want you to know that um, it's really not going to be an efficient spend of your money to do it this way. I'd rather you take the full dose and then have a few weeks break before you get herbs again. Yeah. Um, rather than stretching them out and I thought I'd communicated that really well and nicely but it ended up being offensive for me to actually comment on their use of their budget mm. um, but it was okay for me to keep their budget in mind when it came to my prescri prescriptions which were also limited because of that so you know that was a really that was a tense topic and it and it was connected to their big fear about money at the time. Yeah. Yeah, that's a tricky one. Um, I'll often give people instruction around having less consults and spending more on herbs. So seeing me less often is, a, is usually one of the first ways that I'll try and cut down on their spend. But um yeah, if people aren't going to follow your instructions, it makes it really hard. Yeah. You know, and I'll often just say to someone, hey, you know what, you're taking a child's dose or you're taking an infant's dose. You know, I had, <laughs> I had, a, I had a, um, a patient. This will fix my cat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, like a capsule kind of formula and the dose was like four capsules twice a day. And, uh, and this particular patient was taking one capsule a day. And, um, and I said, wow, you've been on these herbs for ages. They should really, like this bottle will last you maybe 10 or 12 days and it's like a month later and you're still going. And he said, well, there's 78 capsules in the bottle. That's going to last me like over two months. And I'm like, hang on, did you read my instructions that I put on there when I said you're taking four of these twice a day, it's eight a day that you have to take. And, you know, the look on his face was like, oh, man, I've stuffed this up. Um, but, you know, but at least we had that, you know, there was there was the space for honesty to occur in that moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I think there is some more complex lying or dishonesty that can go on and it it's more so relevant if you're a talking practitioner if you have time for counseling and talking um, and that is if people are actually lying to you about what really happened in certain events in their life where they want you to take their side or to gain support within dramas and I think that that's a dynamic that um, you know, perhaps less experienced practitioners can get a little tricked by at first. But I think it's really important to be aware that people are telling you their version of events and that um, we may not necessarily be helping people so much if we just play a role of supporting their the role that they're playing in their dramas and that there's another way that we can just more so listen to them and help them find their own insights about what's going on in that dynamic. Um, and this can be even more complex if you're actually treating other people in this person's life, like if you're treating a family or couples or people who know each other who then start talking to you about problems they're having with each other. Mm. And I find also that a lot of um, a lot of family members or, you know, partners and siblings and and so forth <laughs> they're often dobbing in the other person and I, I mean I find that interesting because you know you get different perspectives and different information than what you're getting from the patient but it can also be a deflection tool um, where it can prevent you from getting towards what that particular patient needs because they're trying to put the focus onto their other family member or to their um or onto their partner yeah so I've, enough about them let's talk about you you're here today <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly you know i had a yeah. patient, when i first became aware of um the extent to which patients can be dishonest you know i'd been in practice maybe three or four years and i've been treating this this one particular patient um she was coming to me for weight loss and no matter what we did, she could not lose a single kilo. And I'm thinking, what is going on? This is just, it was really complicated anyway. Eventually, um, her husband came to see me. And, you know, he had his own problems and we were addressing those. And he made a comment. He said, oh, you know, has, has my wife told you that um, she puts um, a tablespoon of sugar onto her breakfast cereal in the morning and has a block of chocolate every night. <laughs> I'm like, she's eating breakfast cereal? <laughs> you know, let, <laughs> let alone the sugar on it because that's not what she told me that she was eating. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm playing the cool cat, you know. I'm like, oh, you know, I didn't know that, but, you know, thanks for the information. And inside I'm going, oh, my God, all this time, you know, and I've been – questioning my um, skills as a practitioner but I was questioning them in the wrong context you know I was wondering you know what am I doing wrong with my acupuncture and with my herbs but it was actually um, I hadn't created a space for her to be honest with me about what she was doing with her food and she couldn't tell me that she was having a block of chocolate every night I could have helped her with that because that's diagnostic but mm -hmm. as I know that she's got this whole sugar thing going on, um, you know, she's 
constantly telling me that she's, you know, eating so well and she's following all the instructions and blah, 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 when she in fact wasn't. But that was when I first became aware of it and, I, you know, it took me a while to be able to, to be able to detect it and then once I was able to detect it to know what to do with it um, because we can only help our patients so much if we don't get all the information but even if we don't get all the information we can still help them by creating a space where they can give us the information that we need yeah absolutely I think you know there is a there's a fine line between you know not wanting to bolster the stories that others tell themselves or not wanting to bolster their self-importance when they tell stories that they've kind of skewed the truth. Um, and then there's a there's a fine line between not getting involved in that and kind of being inaccessible to that energetically, but just being a really good listener and being able to integrate what you're seeing into your treatments. Mm. But um, the line between that and being very supportive if you hear about abusive dynamics or um, being able to help a patient realize that they're in a dysfunctional dynamic Mm. one of the things I do that helps to create well particularly around food but you could adjust it to um to really fit anything but I I ask people to tell me you know what does a good day of eating look like for you and what does a bad day look like for you like when everything really goes off the rails what is the worst things that you're eating? <laughs> and that's mm. when you'll get the, oh, man, you know, I love, you know, cake or chocolate or, you know, you find out what those things are and at least then you've got a little bit of an insight and they've they've shared with you often before. Mm. They've realised that they've revealed their secret. Yeah. That's great. I I have a method where I kind of go through every possible food group and I just ask them, I just want to know how often you have this item. Um, So, you know, then we get to alcohol or we get to cakes or we get to sugar and and then they can say, well, you know, about once a month I eat a tub of ice cream or, you know, every day I eat a tub of ice cream. Yeah. (laughs) And I I go through all the food groups and the frequencies and I tell them that I'm just going to... Uh, if it's needed, I'm just going to reorganise the frequency at which they eat all these things to optimise what we're, whatever it is we're trying to fix. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. I had a one. Um, I remember one of the first, one of the well, the very first um, place that I was practicing was with a woman that I um, that I studied with in China. She came over to China when we did our internship and. Um, you know, we struck up a great friendship and I worked in her clinic for a while when I first started. And um, one of the things that we used to have a laugh about was um, what she would call shag is back. And so I don't know if it's an Australian thing, but shagging is kind of like a slang term for sex intercourse. And so she would have these patients who would come in and go, oh, I don't know what happened to my back. It just kind of happened and she would say yeah they've got shaggers back so it's kind of like a you know a sex bedroom kind of injury um anyway it was always it was always something that um you know you just kind of have a bit of a laugh about 
but I had a, I've had a few patients where you know I had this one particular patient and um, every year around her birthday so it would be the the Monday or the Tuesday after the weekend of her birthday she would come in with a sore back and um, you know there was never anything that triggered it there's never anything that was kind of happening but you know, it was always in the back of my mind. I'm thinking, is this Shagger's back <laughs> that she's coming in with every year around her birthday? Um, I mean, you'll never know. Um, there's very few people who are going to be opening up to you about that if it is in fact the case. I've, I remember I've had two patients where, you know, they've they've told me about their, their sex injuries. Um, but I think that's something that... Um, <laughs> you know, there's dishonesty Are there, but it doesn't, doesn't matter. Only had sex on her birthday. Well, I think that, <laughs> I don't know. There was something that she was doing. Maybe she was just having a whole boatload of sex on her birthday, or maybe, you know, she was just doing something a bit different. On, you know, mm. maybe that's I don't know. Maybe I mean people do yeah. all kinds of things. Maybe that's when the handcuffs came out. And you bungee know, jump. <laughs> or then, you know. I you know what people do in their in their private lives is their business, but it just was very, um, you know. That's I was giving that as an example of um, this potential dishonesty where it doesn't necessarily yeah. matter. You can still treat them. This is a really good um, surprise segue topic we have here. Is actually when they're dishonest because it's kind of intimate or private. I remember I was in university in clinic actually where we studied together at VUT and I had my first dishonest sex injury patient and it was actually hilarious you know this person was a uh, paramedic student very fit and uh, had been doing some kind of acrobatic sex thing with the girlfriend and didn't want to explain that but the paramedics degree was being taught in the same building as the Chinese medicine degree so came into the acupuncture clinic and just really thought that he would be able to say to me oh yeah my body hurts and it hurts here can you fix it and I would say okay lie down let's do this um, and where I started asking all these questions so uh, what, what did you say you were doing when you had this injury well I was kind of in this position and he <laughs> And I was like, so what? And I guess it kept getting to the point because I really wanted to do a good treatment and I was in third year or something. And I kept saying, so what exactly were you doing? Uh, was this yoga? Or And he's like, oh, for God's sake, I was having sex, all right. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay, cool. All right. <laughs> yeah, all right. So you were moving. All right, now I understand this injury. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So sometimes it really could be because, um, yeah, just rapport and uh, the types of things that that person is likely to disclose to another person as well. Mm. Uh, you know, we get used to talking about everything. We talk about poo and period blood and, the, you know, one of my diagnostic questions that's not from Chinese medicine but from genomics is do, do, how do your farts smell like sulfur? Mm. Um, so, you know, we get used to this stuff, but some people aren't necessarily going to <laughs> say all that. No. Um, so I think one of the best ways, we'll just wrap up now, yeah? Yeah. 
One of the best ways to deal with all of these topics we've covered is actually really in the beginning. And I've set up, um, I really tightened a lot of these systems for myself because I'm on about my third or fourth business <laughs> as a clinician in different locations. And I've tried several different ways. So I really thought carefully about it. And I have like a welcome pack that people get. So when they book their new patient package with me, they get their questionnaire from me. And part of the questionnaire deals with some of this stuff. Um, and I have them sign that they've read the, the cancellation and rescheduling policy. But then a little bit later, like a few days later, but in our first week of contact, they get another um, kind of welcome letter from me, which kind of says, I really want to get great results with you. So, you know, if you're Googling stuff, ask me your questions, please don't self-prescribe, don't go and see other people without running it by me first or, um, you know, and that that the truth in our, the honesty in our relationship is really important to the dynamic for me to being able to do the best for you that I can do. Um, and I found that that's a new thing I've implemented, but it's being received pretty positively and I'm not really seeing many of these issues. Mm. That's great. I think I, I agree with you. I think that setting things up right from the start makes a big difference. You know, we've had, um, I can't tell you the number of times where, you know, people have signed our intake form where we've got the disclaimer and it says, you know, um, something to the effects of uh, we can only go by the information that you give us and if you leave anything out, then it can compromise our ability to give you a good outcome. Um, yeah. And the number of times that people will read that, they'll sign it, and then they'll go back and fill out, oh, by the way, I'm taking antidepressants. Like that's a really common one that people want to try and keep private. Mm -hmm. um, and I get that, and you know, but that's some, there's a lot of, um, you know, that's just one example, but. Um, you know, I think it's the more you can set up from the start in terms of how mm. you've got a cancellation policy. If you're, you know, if you're going to be late, then this is the process. Uh, you know, don't Google yeah. stuff if you can help it. Yeah. You know, all of those things go towards just creating a, a more harmonious environment in clinic and better outcomes for everyone really, you know, it helps yeah. practitioners enjoy going to work, patients get better quicker, you know, it's win-win. Totally. I think all of it comes under the boundary of giving them the information they need so that they can have an awesome time at your clinic. Yeah. And if you present it to them that way, hey, here's your welcome pack and here's how you can have an awesome time at our clinic yeah. and get really great results. Um, you know, I think that that's really positive. Whereas if they're if you wait until they're late all the time and then they get admonished, then you're dealing with a certain type of relationship fallout or difficulty you know it kind of feels icky for you both and yeah it's not nice um yeah and I have found the reason why I delay that welcome letter just a few days is because I do send them a lengthy questionnaire and I find that if you give them too much at once they don't actually absorb it all yeah I mean some people just you know slurp it all up and they love the idea of having six pages like it really suits their personality but you know, in, in internet speak it's called TLDR too long didn't read 
Um, and, you know, <laughs> exactly. Signed <laughs> at the bottom. Yeah, I signed. Because <laughs> I had to. I read the first paragraph. It all seemed legit. I just signed it and, yeah. Yeah, I've heard about this practitioner. I've heard they're awesome. <laughs> I trust Let's get on with time. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we have to accommodate for all types. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Hopefully you've all found this a useful episode. You know, we've, you know, there's so many nuances that we could go into that obviously we didn't have time for. But um, we'd love to hear your perspectives and your experiences and what you've found has worked and what hasn't worked in your clinic um you know most of us have dealt with these issues at various times um some more than others and uh, we'd love to hear more from you thanks for listening rate us on itunes or if you like listening to us and uh, we'll see you next time bye for now